Hello, welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is episode 22, The End of the Beginning. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, come to witness the end of the Roman Empire in the West. To watch the last handful of men attempt to make themselves masters of the world and then fizzle out in a matter of months. Feels a little morbid, does it not? It's a little like that episode of Doctor Who where everyone has gathered to watch the sun die. At least here there will be no one demanding to be moisturized. We'll see what exactly it means when an empire falls and whether anyone notices. And then we'll take a look around the wreckage, gathering fuel for the foreshadowing machine, and look ahead to what I'm calling Season 2. But before we foreshadow, we must call back, and I must remind you of where we stand. I must do this because I have been slightly scattered in my approach over the last three episodes, but now it will all come together in one beautiful, harmonious whole. I hope. The main characters that we had left were the Master of Soldiers and actual power in the Emperor, Rissimer, who had just offed his third emperor in a row, Anthemius, and placed a guy named Olibrius on top of the greasy pole instead. You'll remember Olibrius. He'd been up for the job twice before and lost out because of his uncomfortably close relationship with King Gaiseric of the Vandals. This was evidently not what Eastern Emperor Leo had had in mind when he'd sent Olibrius to mediate the conflict between Rissimer and Anthemius, and he refused to recognize Olibrius' elevation. As far as Constantinople was concerned, there hadn't been a legitimate emperor in the West since Majorian, so that's 11 years now. Actually, we're not that sure that Majorian ever was formally accepted by the East either, but he and Leo were named co-consuls at one point, so that seems legit enough to me. We would expect, then, another period of strife and rancor, surely. With Rissimer and Gaiseric duking it out over who could influence Olibrius the most, and Leo putting his disapproving hand in as well from time to time. Well, no, actually. If that kind of thing was going on, the traces of it have not come down to us, and the reign of Olibrius seems to have been overall uneventful. He was mostly interested in renovating churches and left the running of things to Rissimer, which of course suited him just fine. Or it would have, if he had had time to have an opinion. Rissimer died in August of 472, just about a month after he had put Olibrius on the throne, from some kind of hemorrhage. I imagine the stress finally got to him. I can't say that I'll miss Rissimer. He comes across as self-interested and ruthless, and not in a charming Peter Baelish way, more in a bullying Cersei Lannister kind of way. Rissimer had been the ruling power in the Western Empire for 11 years. He was around 54 years old. Now don't worry about Olibrius, he's not going to have to suddenly start working or anything. Rissimer's place as Magister Militum and Patrician was smoothly taken over by his nephew. The kid's name was Gundabad and he was by birth a Burgundian. I say kid because he was around 20 years old at the time. It was Gundabad, by some accounts, that had relieved Anthemius of his head when everything went pear-shaped for him. It's good to have someone motivated in charge. I am probably being unfair to Olibrius, since the truth is that he also didn't really have time to accomplish anything. He died in November, just seven months after he had arrived in Italy. Apparently he died of dropsy, which a doctor now would call edema and the rest of us would call swelling. Lots of things could have caused it. 
poison's not out of the question, but the vast bulk of probability is that he had some kind of heart condition. Gundabad showed himself every bit his uncle's nephew, and he dithered and hemmed and hawed for months about naming Elibrius' successor. Eventually, he picked the commander of his palace guard, named Glycarius. Now, I am aware that I just introduced and then disposed of a whole Roman emperor in about 400 words. Partly, it's because I assume a lot of you have already listened to Mike Duncan and already know quite a bit of this. Partly, it's because the thing about the last handful of guys is that none of them had much to do with the actual running of the empire. They're sometimes called the ephemeral emperors. Anthemius was the last one to have anything close to a hope in hell of getting anything done, and he was hamstrung by his short-sighted and power-hungry Magister Militum. But really, I stand by my opinion that once Majorian's invasion of Vandal Africa was strangled in the cradle in 460, returning Rome to any kind of position of authority was beyond the competence of any man. So, let's just set these last guys up and knock them back down. If you cast your mind back to episode 19, King Uric, you might recall that Uric of the Visigoths was having a run of successes in Spain, and up in the north of Gaul. In 473, he decided to push for even greater success and sent an army commanded by a general named Vincentius to invade Italy. What his objective was exactly, I don't know, since Glycarius dispatched his own army to intercept the Visigoths, defeated them, and Vincentius was killed. Uric instead deployed his forces closer to home, and Arles and Marseille fell to him shortly thereafter, which was a blow, for sure, but Italy remained secure. Another threat emerged almost immediately from the opposite direction, Ostrogoths from Pannonia, led by a chief named Vidimer. This was a rival of the Amal dynasty that we had talked about earlier, that had taken up residence along the Danube, and he was looking to find his own place inside the Empire's tent. He threatened to invade Italy and win lands for himself and his men, and it's possible that Leo encouraged him. That would not be the first or last time that tactic was deployed by the rulers of the East against the West. Glycarius, though, bought Vidimer off, and the Ostrogoths were redirected to Gaul and Uric's court. What happened next isn't clear. Some authors find evidence in names that come up in later chronicles that the Ostrogoths assimilated into the Visigoths' court and effectively added to Uric's army, while others believe that they were attacked and wiped out. The truth is probably some combination of the two, with the defeated finding a subordinate place inside Uric's court. It's hard to have a good sense of Glycarius personally. He's described by a Byzantine chronicler named Theophanes as a not-despicable man, which is nice, but not very helpful. As before, the real driver of imperial policy was the Magister Militum, Gundabad. Under Gundabad's guidance, there wasn't even a head fake toward regaining territory, which was noticed and commented on at the time. Contemporaries seemed to be waking up to the idea that the Empire was in very real trouble. We may scoff at this, I mean, it's about time, but long-term trends are rarely visible when we're in the middle of them. Coins minted by Glycarius are mostly found concentrated in the north of Italy around Milan and Ravenna, which suggests that his writ didn't run as far as he would have hoped. It was equally telling, in a way, that when an opportunity arose for Gundabad to claim the kingship of the Burgundians, he took it and left Glycarius to his own devices. Kingship of a barbarian kingdom had become more attractive and prestigious than effective rule of the Roman Empire. 
Glycarius was just as unacceptable to Leo in Constantinople as his predecessors had been, and he was finally in a position to do something about it. He had gotten in touch with the governor of Dalmatia, named Julius Nepos. Technically, Dalmatia fell in the West's sphere of responsibility, but the province had been effectively autonomous for some time now. Nepos was the nephew of the former governor of the territory, Marcellinus, who you may remember being one of the competent leaders of the East's attempt to retake North Africa, the one that Basiliscus blew with his fecklessness. Leo may have told Julius Nepos that if he could take it, the western throne was his, or he may have just ordered him to go and get rid of Glycarius. But Nepos was game and gathered a force. In the meantime, Leo died, but the new man in the East, Emperor Zeno, was just as supportive of the mission, so Nepos crossed over to Italy in the spring of 474. The army in Italy had been loyal to Gundabad, not Glycarius, and he put up no resistance. It's possible he was convinced by an offer of clemency, which is what he got. In a pretty unprecedented move, Glycarius was allowed to live, and was ordained as Bishop of Salona, which is modern split in Croatia. That made him Nepos' bishop, and unfortunately we don't know anything about their relationship after that. Did Glycarius take Nepos' confession? Did they have dinner together? History often leaves us without answers to these most pressing questions. Though there is a suggestion that Glycarius was in some way involved with Nepos' eventual assassination, so I'm thinking there may have been some awkwardness. Nepos was acclaimed and crowned in Rome in June of 474. He would be the last man to be so crowned for 326 years. His legitimacy was pretty widely accepted, and so he was right off the bat more successful than Glycarius had been. His coins are found all over Italy, unlike Glycarius's. Nepos was also recognized by Syagrius, way up there in northern Gaul, and he negotiated new treaties with his barbarian neighbors, and seems to have focused on improving his position in Gaul. The Burgundians were reconfirmed as Federati, and he was less successful with the Visigoths. Southern Gaul was still a war zone, and Nepos appointed a new prefect named Ecdysius to force the confident Euric back. If this feels like I'm re repeating myself, it's because we covered some of this in the episode on King Euric. Ecdysius did manage to push Euric back from Arles, but didn't have the men to make the accomplishment permanent. So a new treaty was worked out, and for the first time the Kingdom of Toulouse was recognized as an independent entity, like the Vandals in North Africa. It may have just been confirming what was already reality, but its symbolic importance remained. As part of the deal, Yorick agreed not to seek any more territorial gains in Italy or in Gaul east of the Rhone, and Provence was returned to Italian control. In return, the Auvergne was ceded to the Visigoths. That was personally problematic for our friend Sidonius Apollinaris, who was captured and held as a prisoner for a short while. He came out of it okay in the end, though and returned to work as the bishop of Clermont until his death. Nepos had the same problem that had plagued his predecessors, though. His base of support was too narrow to give him long-term prospects. Having the Eastern Empire stamp of approval is all well and good, but Zeno was a long way away, and not much practical help from the day to day. After the failure in Gaul, Nepos replaced Ecdysius with someone who we've met before. The new new Magister Militum was a Roman named Orestes who we last saw as one of Attila the Hun's secretaries and bodyguards. 
Orestes brought with him Federati from among the tribes that had been wandering around in the aftermath of the Huns' fall, including Heralds and Skiri, who we talked about a bit in episode 20. He was, truth be told, a poor choice by Nepos, and it was less than a year before Orestes raised an army in revolt and took control of Ravenna. Nepos knew he was outmatched and fled by ship across the sea, back to his old headquarters at Salona. He may have commiserated with Bishop Clycarius there, maybe grown some cabbages. He never gave up on his claim of the imperial title, but he also never managed to do anything about it until he died in 480, assassinated by his own bodyguards. For reasons that aren't necessarily entirely clear, Orestes did not take the purple for himself, and instead placed the diadem on his son's head. The new emperor was named Romulus, often called Augustulus, the little Augustus. And I am not the first, nor will I be the last, person to point out the irony that the last ruler of Rome's empire shared the name of the city's founder. There's a reason some people think that fate has a sense of humor. It's twisted, though it may be. Orestes' ship ran up against the rock that had plagued many of his predecessors. He had promised his soldiers land if they would back his coup, and now he couldn't deliver on the promise. So they chose one of their captains, who we have also met before, a Scyrian named Odoacer, to lead them in revolt. Orestes put up more of a fight than Nepos did, but only just. He was caught with a few men trying to reach the safety of Ravenna, quickly defeated and killed. Odoacer entered Ravenna and strode into the imperial palace looking for the emperor. I imagine him striding into a room, Orestes' blood still on his sword. He found the ten or eleven-year-old Romulus, in my mind trembling in a corner somewhere. Odoacer's victory had been easy and complete, and so he could afford to be merciful. Put another way, Romulus wasn't worth killing. He and his mother were sent south, given a villa on an island in the Bay of Naples, and a pension sufficient to maintain him at a senator's rank. We don't know when he died, exactly. Probably after 511, which just underlines how complete a non-entity he was, if such underlining was necessary. But we know that it wasn't at the hands of the usurper. Odoacer gathered up the imperial regalia and sent it to Emperor Zeno in Constantinople. He included a note. There would no longer be any need for two emperors. Zeno could do it on his own. Just make Odoacer patrician, meaning the lead official in Italy, and he would look over the, the territory in Zeno's name. But don't get any ideas about sending any armies to replace him. Those days are also over. Among his own people, and on a few coins, Odoacer referred to himself as Rex Italia, the king of Italy. And in spite of Syagrius's domain in the north and Julius Nepos's bleeding in Dalmatia, the Western Empire was dead. The famous date is September 4th, 476, almost exactly 1,546 years ago. I didn't do that on purpose. It just worked out that way. So that's it. It's over. I would not be saying anything terribly original or clever, were I to bring up bangs and whimpers. And here would also be the traditional place to talk about why it all happened, as if there could be one thing that brings to an end something as vast as the Roman Empire. 
Edward Gibbon famously put forward the adoption of Christianity as the key factor, saying that it had sapped the warlike energy of Rome and turned attention inward to doctrinal conflict, rather than dealing with external barbarian threat. That thesis has been controversial from day one, for pretty obvious reasons, and I'm here to say for the record that I don't buy it at all. Others point to economic changes, administrative changes, the sheer weight of the barbarian migrations overwhelming the state's resources, the withdrawal of the elites from civic engagement, and the resulting degradation of infrastructure. And all of that probably played a part. There isn't a simple answer, and there isn't just one reason. I'm sorry if that seems vague and a little bit mealy-mouthed, but I'm a nerd in a basement, not a professional historian, and the question is above my pay grade. One place where I will plant my flag is that no person or people actually set out to kill the empire. I doubt such a thing would even have occurred to people as possible. The worst offenders against the imperial order, and here I'm specifically thinking of Rissimer, did so out of short-sighted self-interest, not hostility to that order. Indeed, the imperial system was what gave such men power. Destroying the empire would be self-defeating. A line in a textbook called Barbarian Migrations in the Roman West by Guy Halsell sums it up quite beautifully. Quote, the Roman Empire was not murdered, and it did not die a natural death. It accidentally committed suicide. End quote. It isn't fair to expect the individuals of the time to have the same broad perspective that we have now. We certainly don't have that perspective on our own time. With our historical perspective, we're a bit like Vonnegut's aliens, who can see all of time as if it were a single mountain range, and all we can do is shake our heads and say, so it goes. Likewise, none of the barbarian peoples set out to bring down the empire, not even Attila. They all, to one degree or another, came to depend on the Romans for trade, political support, or plunder. And most were savvy enough to recognize the benefits of the Roman administrative tradition once they had direct experience with it. In that speech attributed to Atolf the Visigoth, as he married Gala Placidia, the essential virtue of the empire was succinctly expressed, without law there is no state. And of all of the legacies left by the empire, its law would be the most enduring, maybe second only to its language. So it's all very well to say the Roman Empire came to an end. But what does that mean really? What actually changed when Romulus Augustulus was removed? All of that is politics at the very top level, so how much difference did it make to the other levels? Well, it depended a lot on where you were and who you were. We've already talked about Britannia, and that's definitely one end of the spectrum, with complete political and civil breakdown, leading to an easy replacement of the cultural remnants by the new culture. So let's take a look at what was happening around the rest of the empire, and to do so we'll focus on two things, towns and graveyards. Graveyard archaeology is one of the most, if not the most, important non-literary source for the 5th century. While the literary sources paint a picture of breakdown and chaos, the cemeteries can seem confusing, even contradictory, since they often don't bear the signs we might expect of such apocalypse. They do show change, though. Across Western Europe in the 5th century, furnished graves appear, meaning items are deliberately placed on or around the body. This was in sharp contrast to previous Roman practice. In pagan times, cremation had been the main funeral rite, 
being replaced by inhumation in simple unadorned clothing or shrouds as Christianity arrived and stressed the need for physical resurrection. The items found in these graves are pretty well differentiated between genders, with weapons, except for knives which are found equally in both, found in men's graves, jewelry in women's. For a long time these graves were interpreted as those of the new Germanic arrivals, that these were cultural leftovers of Germanic pagan practices filtering into the Roman world. But the current scholarship has doubts about that. The styles of ornamentation seen as Germanic had already become pretty well ubiquitous in Roman military culture, and many of them, especially men's belt sets, are now recognized as official signifiers of military service and rank. We have contemporary grave sites to compare from areas of Germania and Scandinavia that would have definitely been carried out in a pagan rite, and there really isn't much similarity. Neither Christian or pagan cosmology included the idea of objects being useful in the afterlife, like in the Egyptian model, so why was all this stuff being put into these graves? The answer can be found in the simple aphorism that a funeral is not for the dead, it's for the living. In almost all cases across the board, furnished graves make up 15 or less percent of the total interments in a cemetery, and they're usually found grouped together, suggesting a family connection. The current thinking is that this practice is a way of displaying the deceased and the deceased's families power and prestige, and therefore reinforcing that power and prestige. Furnished graves are more common in border areas where we know there was political conflict, and become more common also in time periods where there is evidence of strife elsewhere. What that means overall, then, is that the traditional markers of political influence have begun to break down. The old authority has disappeared, and the aristocratic families have found themselves without the automatic prestige that imperial connection used to grant them. The new game in town is now entirely military and almost entirely barbarian, so in order to convince their communities, and maybe themselves, of their continued relevance, families bury their loved ones with anything they can that will associate them with the new authority and the new sources of legitimacy. Many of the bodies found in these graves are probably of Germanic descent, but many others of them are perhaps scions of old Roman families who have had to change the face they show to the world. The new power was Gothic or Frankish, and if you wanted to stay powerful, then you would do your best to look like a Goth or a Frank. The funeral display also emphasizes the local nature of the new structure. There used to be little point in this kind of thing since the people you needed to impress weren't around day to day. They lived in the urban centers, or in Rome, or in Ravenna, or wherever. Now the big man may be coming around pretty regularly, so it pays to look important in a very immediate and practical way. And on the other hand, it also pays to remind the hoi polloi who their betters are on a regular basis, since the patina of imperial authority was no longer available to fall back on. Horizons had contracted significantly. We see this contraction in other parts of life too. Pretty consistently across the empire, in the, the public spaces of the towns fall into disuse. Fora, those central squares that had been the heart of social and political life, were in some places built over by local elites. In others we see them converted into cemeteries or even rubbish pits. Urban life, as in Britain, sees a significant contraction as the population becomes more rural. That doesn't mean all buildings stopped by any means, but there is a clear shift, and much of the new building is centered on churches. The shift in society's values were clear, from the civic to the religious, 
from the urban to the rural. From the national, though that's an anachronistic word in this context, to the local. By way of an extreme example, when Aquileia was refounded after it had been razed to the ground by Attila in 453, the new city limits included the footprint of the old cathedral, but not that of the Forum. There was variation in this pattern, of course, from one place to the other, but that's the general pattern. Some people like to say that commoners wouldn't have noticed the loss of the empire, but to me the evidence says otherwise, as does just common sense. Even if they wouldn't have understood the mechanisms of the change, they would have noticed the changes. Prices changed, landlords changed, the rhetoric that their overlords used changed. Saying they wouldn't notice is reductive and underestimates the intelligence of the average person. That may be a pet peeve of mine, but I thought it was worth pointing out. So by way of an end-of-unit review kind of thing, let's take a flying tour around the Empire and see the situation as we leave it, and as a preview of what comes next. Britain is lost, devolved into a patchwork of rival warlords and petty kings, soon to be colonized and remade by the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. Across the Channel in northern Gaul, the so-called Domaine of Soissons clings on to a vaguely defined territory between the Loire and the Somme, maybe further east. Its ruler, Syagrius, is nominally Roman, but in practice is propped up by Frankish fighters, and it won't be long before the Franks make their move. Meanwhile, in the remote and forested lands to their west, refugees from Britain are creating a new entity called Brittany. South across the Loire, King Uric the Visigoth is supreme in his capital at Toulouse. The Visigothic kingdom is the largest of the new kingdoms, with borders at the Loire and the Rhone in Gaul and stretching all the way across the Pyrenees to claim control, at least on paper, of most of the Iberian Peninsula. His Gallic lands boast the most intact Roman administrative system, which has simply shifted its loyalty to the Visigoth elite and given Europe greater control and revenue-collecting abilities than most of his neighbors. In the south, in Hispania, things are more chaotic, and for the moment, the Visigoths treat the land on the other side of the mountains as hinterland to extract tribute from, rather than to really rule. So most of Spain is in the day-to-day -day control of local government. City life seems to have survived longer in Iberia than elsewhere, so local control has centers that it can work from. The exception is in the northwest, where Suevi kings still hold on to power and exert some central control. But they've been living on borrowed time and won't be able to cling on too much longer. The remaining section of Gaul and parts of Noricum belong to the Burgundians, for whom Fortune's wheel has perhaps spun the fastest, swinging between independence and subjugation with a quickness that's hard to keep track of. I haven't spoken much about them, which is a regret, and one that I am probably not going to correct. Yet further south, past the Pillars of Hercules, we find that Moorish rulers are engaged in carving out small kingdoms in the power vacuum left by the Vandal invasions. We don't know much about these, not even exactly how many of them there were. Most of the evidence for them is in the form of inscriptions, and these show an intriguing mix being formed of Roman tradition combined with those of the desert raiders, with some rulers even claiming the title of emperor, at least over their own patch. Meanwhile, Gaiseric remains king of the richest part of Africa, the elder statement of the Mediterranean now. He presides over a society that remains culturally Roman. Indeed, it's commonly noted that if we relied on archaeology alone, the Vandal invasion would be completely invisible. But his presence and his naval power will keep the Vandals relevant and threatening well into the next century. 
In Italy itself, Odoacer now sits as the ruler of something called the Kingdom of Italy. The senatorial class remains, landed and rich, but Odoacer has an army to reward as well as a kingdom to run, and will have to find a way to do both without losing the support of either, while fending off the predations of raiders from the north, east, and south, as well as the disapproving gaze of Constantinople. I haven't talked about what's been going on in Constantinople for quite a while, and to be honest, that's not going to change much. I don't plan on talking too much about the Eastern Roman Empire, or Byzantium as we have come to call it, because I've got enough plates to keep spinning, number one, and number two, I could never hope to compete with Robin Pearson's History of Byzantium podcast. Go check it out if you haven't, and let him know I sent you. He doesn't know who I am, but you know, it's worth a shot. Just know for now that the Eastern Empire has been through its own rough patch, but will come out of the 5th century in okay shape. The Persians remain the great rival, though around the edges there remain steppe people in the north and Arabs in the south who can make a nuisance of themselves from time to time. The east still holds the Balkans, Greece, Anatolia, the Levant, and wealthy, wealthy Egypt. It is still the center of most Christian thought and philosophy, hosting three of the four patriarchies of the church in Alexandria, Antioch, and Constantinople itself. When we do talk about the East from now on, it will most likely be in relation to its religious significance, at least at first, and the conflicts with the popes that are on the way. The lands outside the old frontiers remain hidden to much of history, visible mostly through archaeology. There are still Germanic tribes in the forests and bogs of Germania and Scandinavia, some of them are forming new confederations, most notably a tribe called the Langobards, the Longbeards, who will make themselves known in the next century. The Gepid kingdom is growing in importance nestled in the Carpathian Basin, and on the steppes in the unending swirl of people, new forces are appearing to stir things up again, in the form of the Avars. And the Slavs will also appear, to add themselves to the list of nuisances the Eastern Empire will have to contend with. The next century will be the story of all of these people coming to terms with the new realities of life, and finding a way to blend together the old Roman ways and the old barbarian ways, and make them into something new. That brings us to the end of this first season of the Dark Ages podcast. I'll be honest, this took many more episodes than I expected it to. 22 episodes to cover about 100 years. But looking back, I'm more conscious of things that I left out than things I shouldn't have put in. I've mentioned before that I've been planning to take a hiatus to catch up on reading and such things, as well as implement some of the changes and upgrades I have in mind. I'm looking at about six weeks off, which will put my date of return at October 24th. That is, like all dates and plans in these parts, a soft date. I'll try to let you all know how it's going through social media. Now, as to the question of content... I haven't completely made up my mind about the order in which I want to tackle things in the next season. The general idea is to focus on the 6th century in the way this season has been more or less focused on the 5th. Before I start on the political narrative, though, I thought it would be fun to kick off with some themed episodes. So, for example, I know I want to do an episode on warfare. Other ideas include the papacy, maybe a specific biography or two. I want to get in some of the social stuff that's been missing up till now, so we have a clearer idea of what the world looks and feels like. What I really want here is your input. Seriously. So if you have any ideas or suggestions about the kind of thing you'd like to hear more about, 
please, oh please, visit the contact page at darkagespod.com, where you can also check out transcripts for most of the episodes and take a gander at my sources. If typing in your URLs isn't your thing, then you can email me directly at darkagespod at gmail.com, although that does involve slightly more keystrokes. Thank you all very much for listening. And I'll see you all in October. Until then, take care. Thank you.